Välkommen till Freuds Toolbox, skolans inspirationspodd med fokus på känslor, relationer, lärande och ledarskap. Tillsammans med Kenneth Freud får du inspireras av och lära av nationellt och internationellt ledande experter på evidensbaserat lärande och ledarskap. Hi everyone. Today we will talk about a really important subject for us, or both for teachers and for principals, or actually for any person working in schools trying to help our students to succeed. We need to have a connection between sort of the science of learning, neurocognitive science, and what we do in schools. And that is often a bit of a case, but for sure not always. I think we have a lot to learn. And you often talk about evidence-based learning or evidence-based practice. And the guest of today, I think you can find anyone that are more evidence-based. Uh, as far as I've read, uh, she's been researched in her own classroom. So very welcome to Patrice Bain. Thank you so much for having me. This is my first time talking to people in Sweden and I'm absolutely delighted to be here with you. Uh, it's so great. One thing I often think about, uh, I mean when you use neurocognitive science you have different strategies uh, that adapts to sort of how the brain functions. But I think one of the first things when the kids come into the classroom they can be thinking of a lot of things that have happened during recess and so on. So you need their attention, not just in the beginning, of course, but then uh, do you have any recommendations how to sort of gain your students' attention? I have many. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, can you give sort of the, the best of Patrice? <laughs> There is a wonderful quote by Daniel Willingham who wrote a fabulous book, Why Don't Students Like School? And the quote is, children are more alike than different in terms of how they think and learn. And when I first read that, I thought it was profound. So whether the students are in Sweden or the United States, they are going to think more alike than different. Yeah. And once you understand the science of learning and how to apply that to your classroom, you're able to reach your students. With the research that was done in my classroom, which, by the way, was the first time in the United States that research was actually done in a classroom with real students. Mm. Previously to that, it was done at universities with college mm. students and laboratories. And so we researched four main principles, but the first one was retrieval. Yeah. And a nice quote from my co-author, Dr. Pooja Agarwal, is too often we focus on getting information into our heads. What if instead we yeah. focused on pulling information out and yeah. that's retrieval. So yeah. as students would come into my classroom, the first thing I would do was to get them to actively retrieve, yeah. whether it was something we had discussed yesterday, something from last week, but getting that transition from research, from recess or a different class, whatever, it's important to, to bring that focus in and have them retrieve. Yeah. And it could be simply so easy as simply asking them, what did we talk about yesterday? Yeah. Give them a moment to think, have a turn and talk with their neighbor, and then do a group share. And within 90 seconds, you have a room rich with retrieval. So there are many 
many strategies you can use, but the key is to have them actively retrieve. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> but to have them actively retrieve, then do you have an, an advice on, or, or do you normally just by starting a re retrieval exercise, will you get all attention, attention from all the kids? I mean, if being some argument during the recess or something has happened on social media and so on there, so there, the brain are full of something else. Do you have an advice on how sort of break and get their attention over to what you want them to think of? Well, what I learned yeah. by the research in my classroom was it was really important for me to teach my students how to learn. Yeah. In fact, every first day I said, I'm your teacher and I'm going to teach you how to learn. To me, one of the one of the biggest problems is that often our students have not been taught how to learn. Often our teachers have not been taught how we learn. We learn how to teach. Yeah, but we tell, often yeah, don't learn how to learn. Yeah. And so because my students were aware of this and they knew what retrieval was, they knew what spacing was, yeah. it was as if learning had been like this big invitation to a learning party and the struggling students had never received an invitation. Yeah. And so teaching our students how to learn, especially our struggling students, is that invitation to the learning party. And what happens, whatever happened previously, because my students, every single one, whether they were in classes for gifted, whether they were in special education classes, whether, you know, they had had a parent who had been murdered or a sibling who died or who had cancer. I had every student. And as soon as they entered in my room, they knew it was going to be 44 minutes of success. And I think when you have a room that is safe, that, that every student feels success, regardless of what happened, they're able to be transported into a vibrant room of learning. Uh, but if they feel success, they must still at the same time understand sort of uh, what the Bjorks uh, develop then uh, this desirable difficulties. How do you make them? How do we make them understand that difficulties uh, will be desirable, or, or and how will it be desirable? I mean, if will be what in the beginning is desirable difficulties after a while, maybe it's undesirable difficulties. How sort of do you make that equation? I think as teachers, we need to be aware. This is so important. If it's too easy, the learning won't stick. Yeah. If it's too hard, our students may shut down. Yeah. And so as teachers, we need to know our students. And we need to know where that sweet spot is. Yeah. Front and center in my classroom. And although I taught, oh my goodness, second grade, third grade, fifth grade, middle school, high school, college. But my favorite and my most of my years were spent teaching 11 to 13 year olds. Yeah. And I would always have a sign front and center in my classroom that says, it's okay to make mistakes. That's the way we learn. And so my classroom was a safe place for making mm -hmm. errors. And, and I would teach my students about desirable difficulties 
because I was teaching them about learning. But a wonderful person that I follow is Blake Harvard at Effortful Educator. And he changed the term a little bit to desiring difficulties. So I would teach my students that I wasn't going to give them work that was too easy, but I wasn't going to give them work that was too hard, but I was going to give them desiring difficulty. I believed in cold calling. So I didn't call on people who had their hands raised. If you were in my class, I called on you. But again, if you didn't know the answer, it was okay. Another sign in my room was, it's okay to ask for help. No one need do it all alone. And so if I called on a person and they didn't know the answer, they would simply say, somebody help me. And I would always stop right then and there and say, I am so glad that you are having a desiring difficulty right now. Because you are, it lets me know that other students may as well. So let's tackle this. And because you're now going to get an answer, it's going to strengthen this memory. So there are so many ways to bring cognitive science and the science of learning to your students, regardless of their ages. Yeah. That's really interesting. And also this version of the former desirable difficulties, desiring difficulties. I'm thinking, do you have any sort of golden rule how to sort of plan a lesson? I mean, if I compare, I come from the sports area from the beginning. And if you sort of, if I would train a high jumper, I wouldn't start on like uh, 242. I would start on sort of lower. I would warm up. And then mm-hmm. challenge more, and I would always let my my athletes succeed in the end, not go away with sort of a lot of failures. Do you have a sort of any idea of sort of the composition of 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 your lessons? I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So again, that first day, I'm your teacher, and I'm going to teach you how to learn. Yeah. And I always started where students could not fail. So I wanted from day one to get my students practicing retrieval. And so I would practice using whiteboards. I would practice turn and talks, but I would start with questions where no one would fail, such as first day of school, what was the latest you slept over the summer? Or What is your least favorite school lunch? So starting with questions where students would think, write down an answer. And right then I'm saying, you're retrieving. This is how we're going to be doing our classes this year. You will be pulling forth information. And they would get into the practice of turn and talk and group share. Mm -hmm. So it would probably be a good week or so before I would ever start having retrieval curricular questions. And even then I would have them use the whiteboards, probably not a turn and talk yet, but I would give them an answer. I'm sorry, I would give them a question, have them write it down, and then I would give the answer. So nobody else saw if they got it right or wrong. And then, so that was retrieval, but then I would also be stressing metacognition. And I would define that is it's simply knowing what you know and what you don't. So back to if they made errors, to me, it was not an error, but a roadmap showing, oh, I don't know that yet. And so as I would start the practice of retrieval, I would also be talking about metacognition and offering them many ways to test whether they knew it or not. I think a a danger that we get into as teachers is 
we simply don't offer our students enough chances to test their metacognition, to test retrieval mm -hmm. before a big test happens. Our students should score very well on every single test we ever give because we have guided them on the process of learning. So by the time that big test comes, yeah. they know the information. Yeah. Uh, one of our, our more famous school researchers, Jörn Hattie, he talks a lot about how we need to promote more thinking among our students in the school. And as I understand, that is also something you focus a lot on. What are your sort of strategies to, to have your students think as much as possible or use their metacognition? I mean, you're already on to that subject, but can you mm -hmm. elaborate more? I can. Yeah. So we know retrieval is pulling forth memory. Yeah. We know metacognition is, my definition is being able to di discriminate what you know from what you don't. We know we cannot teach a one and done. We know due to the forgetting curve that as soon as we learn something, we start forgetting it. And so we know the Ebbinghaus curve of when best to bring back information to strengthen the memory. And that is called spacing or space mm -hmm. practice. And it is the frequency with which we offer retrieval. Mm -hmm. The fourth principle that I think is so important is interleaving. Mm -hmm. And interleaving allows our students to compare and to contrast. And so when we really want deep thinking and critical thinking, yeah. we use interleaving. An example I like to share is with um, Dr. Henry Rodiger and Dr. Mark McDaniel, our two cognitive scientists. They are the ones that I worked with with the research in my classroom. They wrote a wonderful book called Make It Stick. And an example they gave for interleaving was, let's say you are a baseball or a softball coach and your pitcher and your batter are at practice. Now, as a coach, you could instruct the pitcher to give 10 fastballs, 10 slow balls, 10 curveballs, but the batter is always going to know what's coming. Instead, if you instruct your pitcher to do a fastball, two curveballs, a slow ball, every time that ball leaves the pitcher's hand, the batter has to think of everything they know about hitting that ball in order to make the best hit. As teachers, we don't want our students to always know exactly what's coming because they don't really have to think. Instead, we want to switch it up so the students have to take everything they know about that subject in order to make the pet the best possible decisions. In my world history class, I would use essential questions. So for example, when we were studying revolutions, if we were studying the industrial revolution, the French revolution, the Russian revolution, a question I would have front and center in my on my board would be, how did the lives of working people change as a result of revolutions. And then as we discussed the Industrial Revolution, my students would answer that. And as we studied the French Revolution, my students could answer that and there and throughout the revolutions. So by the time we finished that unit, I could give them an essay question on that question. How did the lives of working people change as a result of revolutions? And my students could, could intertwine between every revolution we studied in order to answer that. That is deep and critical thinking. 
that is what we want our students to be able to do. Not just simple recall who was a person or what date did this happen, but really combining and contrasting information. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. If we go back to, to spacing, uh, what's your thoughts about uh, how long time in between? Or do you think it differs a lot between subjects, the uh, complexity of what they are supposed to retrieve? Or when I was sort of, for instance, asked uh, Bob and Elizabeth Bjork, they said, mm, you need to try it out. They, they don't want to say anything about <laughs> how many days or, or whatever and that they talk principle this is what the science says but they have on the other hand tried it in a lab and you have tried it out in a classroom mm -hmm. yeah this is what worked best for me yeah i would take whatever was really important that we had discussed the day before and i would just write it on little slips of paper and cut it up and put it in a basket. And the next day, as students came in, we would do a little mini quiz. And I would simply, it was, I call them mini quizzes because it was on little two by three inch recycled pieces of paper. Yeah. They would number one through five. I would read out five clues and they would answer. And they had opportunities to retrieve 24 hours later. And they were able to test their metacognition. Did they know it? Or was it something they still needed to learn? At the end of the week, I would have more questions in there and I would have a 10 point quiz. So it could have been anything from that week or a previous week, last lesson, and I would simply ask 10. So I was retrieving. I was spacing out. They were testing their metacognition. And because of the information I put on those slips of paper, I was also using interleaving. So here was this great little activity that the students loved. And again, it helped them focus because as soon as they came in, we would do the mini quiz and it got us right on track for, for continuing on the lesson. So anytime you can find a strategy that incorporates those four important principles, that is, is how you get optimal retrieval and you decide how you're going to space it out. Just make sure you do. Yeah, thank you. That's that's interesting. Uh, also thinking about our working memory, we know that is quite limited. It differs mm -hmm. a lot between students and you could have a lot of diversity and capacity within your class. Uh, how do you do to, to make the students make the best use of their working memory? So the working memory is used for what you wanted for your content and not for a lot of other stuff. Exactly. Oh, what a great question that is. We know that we can basically remember four to seven new things in our working memory. And we know that students can get really overloaded, cognitive mm -hmm. overload. And so as teachers, what we want to do is, is one of the best things we can do is chunk. Realize that they've just come from another class, a totally different subject, and now you have to get them into your room into the space in their head of your yeah. room and so again part of the way i would do that would be through my mini quizzes yeah but then as i introduced new information say a new chapter or a new unit i really used pre-tests because pre-tests set the stage for what we would be learning this class. Yeah. 
And so as we got to that subject, I can say, oh, remember in the pretest. So what it is, you're you're already putting these little hooks available. And when you do a pretest, you know, it doesn't don't grade it. It doesn't have to be graded. It's it's no, a pretest. No. But the purpose is to to kind of announce this new information. But as you do link it to what is already in their long-term memory. And so what you're doing, you're maximizing on the small amount that they, that they have in their working memory, but, but you're increasing it because you're chunking it. You are, you are adding it, linking it to what's already in their long-term memory. Mm -hmm. Mm. Uh, I also, yeah. if I can interrupt for a second. Yeah, of course you if, can, for many seconds. Yeah. <laughs> if you go to www.powerfulteaching.org slash resources, you can download templates of my strategies. Yeah. Use them, adapt them, you know, change them but they're all based on retrieval and spacing and interleaving and metacognition and, and they're free. Don't, don't feel like you have to reinvent the wheel. There's a lot of tools available out there and, and feel free to borrow mine, to yeah. use mine. That's really great. I appreciate that. Or the listeners will appreciate it. For mm-hmm. sure. uh, one more thing about the working memory. If you sort of optimize the use and that maybe should include taking away distractions and other stuff that isn't about the content. Uh, But then it still will be some kids that have really limited working memory. Do you have any ideas? How can we somehow compensate so they can also reach sort of a high level of learning so they won't sort of be losers based on on their, their limited working memory? Do you have any ideas around that? I really think the key is is providing those links to chunk that information. Yeah. I just, to me, that was really vital. And you also, you need to know your students really yeah. well. Yeah. And, and you need to know, are there, do you have a couple students in your class who are more apt to experience cognitive overload and shut down because we know that can happen. And thinking of those students, what can you specifically do to help those students feel success? Uh, Again, the pre-tests help uh, while you're circulating the room. If, if they're having trouble, you could even just bow down or, or just write a little note or whisper in their ear. Remember when we talked about, you know, and giving them that little hint? It's like, yeah. oh, yeah. So, you know, you know your students and you know if there's someone who's going to need just that little boost. Yeah. You're the teacher. Be there and provide that. Yeah. Another thought because of... Most classrooms are quite diverse. Do, do, you, mm-hmm. do you have sort of some strategy? Do you use always like in full class or do you use uh, like collaboration? Do you work in groups like cooperative learning or do you use station teaching or what, what? Do you have any recommendations on how to sort of manage the diversity? I understand sort of how you apply neuro and cognitive science, the science of learning, but to to reach all your students, if you have a diverse class, do you have any ideas? What What's your best sort of advice to, to reach all your students, not like the 80% in the middle? Right. First of all, really know your students. Yeah. I, I think that is key. I did not use stations when I taught. I, I often, because it was world history yeah, and it was the first time 
in my district where this was taught, everyone was a blank slate. And so creating connections. Uh, I'm, I love teaching through storytelling. Yeah. And there are ways, I mean, history is ripe for storytelling, right? And so I was able to, to get rich information through storytelling. And we want our students to retrieve. So again, working with parents, I believe is vital. I would encourage my parents, whether they're in the car or, you know, in the evening, simply to ask, what story did Mrs. Bain tell you today? And the the children would get very animated and retell the story. But what were they doing? They were retrieving and they were spacing and they were using their metacognition. And so, you know, finding the strategies that are going to work for your students, knowing your students. Mm. Uh, Again, because it was the first time in the curriculum, we read the textbook aloud because I wanted students to be able to to hear how words are pronounced, whether it was uh, Lady Murasaki Shikibu or Queen Amanashakate or... You know, my 11-year-olds were clueless in how to pronounce Mm. these. I also like to be able to stop and chunk. So Mm. as we were reading something, I could simply stop and do a blast from the past question. Oh, do you remember when we talked about the Nile River? What was it about flooding that we could compare to this river civilization? Turn and talk with your neighbor. So there are ways to keep involving your students. Another thing, another strategy that I would do was because as the teacher, you know your students, I would use retrieve taking. So, you know, say we were reading in the book or I was giving a lecture or a presentation, I would simply say, okay, we're going to stop. Let's close our books. Let's get a blank screen. And I want you to write down two things that you think were really important that we just discussed. And what you're doing is you're having your students retrieve and you share that information. You do a group share and then you get right back to the topic. So there are many, many ways that You can stop what's going on, have your students collect thoughts, and this also helps with cognitive overload. They're not like, wait, wait, I'm getting lost. No, simply stop. Give them a chance to breathe. Give them a chance to write down some ideas, to hear what other ideas they gathered, and then continue on. I was thinking about this with testing. If we if we sort of relates to like formative summative assessment, uh, you could define it in many ways. But if you, I mean, you can use any test for a formative work or formative teaching. But if you say that the formative part is low stakes and the summative is high stakes, how how are your proportions? What what do you think is is relevant? You know, it really depended on the chapter or unit that I was teaching. Um, But I told my students that learning is kind of like a ride on a train. You get on at the station and the big test is your destination. But all of those little stops in between... Yeah. Those are our chances to retrieve, to space, to yeah. interleave, yeah. to test metacognition. Yeah. So by the time you reach your destination where the train ends, you have had so many opportunities to test that information. So you are successful by the time that big test comes. 
Now, again, depending on the chapter or the unit, maybe the train stopped three times. Maybe it stopped eight times. You know, you know from teaching units or chapters where students are going to struggle a little bit more. Yeah. Add some extra stops in there. Add extra retrieval and opportunities for them to test themselves whether they know it or not. But as I recall from your book, Powerful Teaching, uh, good retrieval practice should be low stake. Uh, Yeah. And the end stations are high stake. Absolutely. I also remember I had an interview with, uh, with Professor Dylan William and asked him... I have, for instance, at my own school, like grade seven, eight, nine, and I asked him how much, uh, how much summative assessment do you think we need with these students? Hmm. He said, "Hey, you're grading in the end of each semester, right?" Yes, I said. Yeah, that's enough. <laughs> he said that the students know where they are, and you, you don't need yes. it. You should just work formative the rest of the year. That was his opinion. Yeah, I agree. I think. We need to re-educate ourselves. I don't know mm. how the big tests became yeah. so important and, and why, you know, students and and parents and and our administrators, um, the principals, they sometimes think that it's so important to have so many grades, yeah. you know, like every day or four times a week. And really we need to be concentrating on learning. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And providing those opportunities to have our students really understand the material. The first year of uh of using retrieval in my classroom, Dr. Agarwal and I did a a pop final at the end of the year. That means it was a great big unannounced test. Yeah. It did not go in the grade book because that wouldn't have been fair. No. But we wanted to see how much would our students remember if they had no idea a test was coming, yeah. that they couldn't study for it. Just simply, what do you remember? And what we found was when retrieval had been used throughout the year, my students were able to retrieve 79% of what had been taught. As teachers, it's so impressive. And it's not, you know, that they remembered because I was their teacher. They remembered because of the retrieval because of the strategies. And there isn't a single teacher out there that can't use these same strategies. As teachers, we work so hard and it's disheartening for us to teach something. And three weeks later, they don't remember it. We work too hard for that. Don't you want your students to remember almost 80% without any studying whatsoever? that it's simply in their long-term memory. Yeah, that's amazing. Do you have any sort of, doesn't have to be exact, but some ideas sort of proportions between sort of teaching and retrieval in the classroom? Like a a percentage, so it could not, not, it could be really... Not exact, it doesn't. I, I understand it could differ a lot between subjects and what you're doing, right? Yeah, I, I really believe that the teacher is the master of his or her classroom, yeah, and knowing the curriculum and knowing your students, knowing where your students are going to struggle, yeah knowing where they have more background knowledge it's it's you're the master take all of this and apply it to your teaching do you need to retrieve more often um do you need to slow down and take a pause are your students um 
overloaded, cognitively overloaded. Yeah. You know, we are, we're, we're maestros, you know, yeah. and, and we need to be able to orchestrate, but, but also one of the keys for teachers is to understand this science of learning. Yeah. It, it is so available to us right now. Yeah. And being able to understand, you know, too often, again, like I said, we work so hard. And as yep. teachers, we think, oh, my gosh, this is one more thing I have to do. One more thing added to my already overcrowded plate. But when you start to understand how we learn and what you're doing often, what you are already doing, but being more intentional and purposeful, you realize you're able to take so much off of that plate yeah. that when you use retrieval throughout, you don't have to spend a week reviewing because your students already know it. You have, you know, happier students, happier teachers, yeah. and it's all available at our fingertips. But you can sometimes have teachers that think, mm, I have so much content I need to, to teach, so I don't have time for this uh, retrieval practice. What do you say to them then? I've been there and I've done that. I too, uh, when I first started teaching, my curriculum started with first civilizations all the way up to modern times on all of the continents. That's set up for failure, you know? So I had to work with my principal and say, let's take a look. What are the most important things my students need to know? What do they need to know for next year? What do they need to know for high school? Let's take a look. And I think this is a really important conversation between principals and teachers. Yeah. You know, what's really vital? Yeah. Do you want do you want breadth where you cover from the beginning of time until last night's news? Or do you really want to focus on the depth? What are these things that your students will build upon that are really important for them to know? Interesting. Uh, now we have a slightly different question. Let's say now you're not a teacher anymore. You're a principal for a new school and mm -hmm. you have no limitations. You, you can sort of have your own profile. And you can focus on exactly what you want to. If you would choose what, what is the, the key things for success, what, what would you focus on? Could be like how you recruit your teachers. It could be a strategy. It could be anything. Sort of your, your best keys for success in a school. First Your of all, school. wouldn't yeah. that be a dream job? Oh, yeah, I would, would love be. that. I would love that. I would, I would really think long and hard about my faculty. Yeah. I, I would want strong leaders that I could support. And I would want people who already were well-versed in the science of learning, in cognitive science, and people who were eager to learn about it. So we could develop as a team yeah. of of bringing the best strategies and the best learning i would want a faculty that is that is just prime for learning and eager eager to make sure that that learning 
that invitation to learn is issued to every single student in my school. Yeah, something that I love about your what you would like to do is that you say the word learning, learning, learning over and over again, because very often we talk about teaching, but not necessarily about the students learning. So sort of the shift in in perspective is uh, is both really important and interesting, I think. I think that is vital. You yeah. know, we we learn how to teach by the time we have finished our teacher education programs. We know how to teach. Yeah. But too often we just haven't been taught how we learn. And they yeah. so go hand in hand. You can you can teach all day. But it doesn't mean your students learned a thing. You mm. know, it needs to go hand in hand. Yeah. Yeah, it's so interesting. I also like to, the people that listen to podcasts uh, can't notice this one, but uh, <laughs> this, this book, Powerful Teaching, uh, Unleash the Science of Learning, that is, I think, uh, if not the best one of the absolutely best book I read in this area and on the market. So I think it's a must read for, for teachers and principals. Oh, thank and you. behind thank you, you so in much. the bookshelf, I also noticed this book for, for parents that I think is so important. I mean, we are a team that are helping the kids. We are we have a, a big task in our school, of course, but we need to collaborate with the, the parents, the legal guardians. So I think that is an important book that I haven't read yet. It's To me, it was very important to work with the parents of my students. I, I created the term, the teaching triangle, which is that all important collaboration between student, parent, and teacher. When, when I had an open house or parent-teacher conferences, I wouldn't talk about rules or behavior. I would talk about learning. How does your child learn? I would have parent symposiums because together, you know, when when we want to retrieve, we want to use retrieval and we want to use spacing, parents are right there. You know, like I said earlier, tell me Mrs. Bain's story today. The child is retrieving. When we simply send home a note to a parent, say, oh, you might want to ask your child about this, you know, this science experiment, you know, ask why it turned out that way or or send home a question. We talked about this today. Ask your child this question. And by the way, here's the answer, because, <laughs> you know, at, but the parents know that you're using spacing and retrieval. If if they see their child's work and they're thinking, why on earth are you doing this? You learned this three weeks ago. Well, your child can say, oh, we're spacing it out. You know, uh -huh. and so- yeah, that's fabulous. Yeah, I love that. It is this wonderful, <laughs> this wonderful tool. So when I wrote this book, my condition with um, the publisher was that it had to be less than a hundred pages yeah. because I want it accessible yeah. that every person could read it and have strategies and know just what to do. And what I have found is a lot of teachers are also gravitating to it because again, we're so busy and they might not have time for a deep dive in a 330 page book. Mm, true. But having having a short less than 100 pages that explains, you know, retrieval and spacing and metacognition and strategies to use is a great introduction. Things that they could start using in their class tomorrow. Um and then later once you're familiar with, with the basics, now do your deep dive into powerful teaching. It's so interesting, all of this, and I, I need to buy a new book now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes, finally, do you have any sort of final words, recommendations that could be for 
teachers, listeners, I think listeners is both teachers and principals. And I'm happy, for me it's important also that the principals listen because they can influence their schools a lot and give conditions, good conditions for their teachers to succeed. So anything you would like to end with? Well, yes, you know, I'm a storyteller. So let me tell you a story. So as you know, every first day I'm your teacher and I'm going to teach you how to learn. And in the United States, our school year is divided into four quarters. And so report cards come out after each quarter. So every single year at the beginning of second quarter, right after the report cards had gone out with their grades, I would have students come up to me and say, Mrs. Bain, I have a B or I have an A in your class. And I would say, I know. But you would see their demeanor change and they would say, but I never get good grades. And they would sink down a little lower and say, I always get D's and F's. And finally, sinking so low, they would say, I'm not smart. And it would get to me, how in this world can we have educational systems where students internalize failure by the time they are 11 years old. Hmm. We know better and we can do better. I would turn to these students and say, but look at you now. The only difference is now you're learning how to learn. We owe it to every single one of our students to to be able to have them internalize success. We know how to do this. And think if in early grades, we start teaching the science of learning to our students, think of how their trajectory of education will totally change their social emotional learning because they internalize success. So to every principal, I would encourage them Make your school one where your students internalize success. It can be done. Fantastic final words. And I love that story and hope many principals will follow your advice. So thank you. Thank you so much for a really interesting conversation and a lot of interesting learning for myself as well. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. It has been delightful. Um, again, you're my first person from Sweden. So, um, you know, contact me. I have, I'll be happy to share this podcast. Follow me on Twitter at Patrice Bain one. And, um, let's keep learning going. And thank you so much for having me. Thank you.